my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, February 29th, 2012. We're going to be doing our light edition today. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, uh, we, uh, well, we help teach you how to listen like a Berean, to discern to open up your Bible and see if what that pastor or author or famous teacher is telling you is what God's Word really says or if they're twisting God's Word, scratching itching ears, you know, doing something other than what they ought to be doing. Are they a shepherd or are they a wolf? This uh, program helps you identify those types of teachers by teaching you how to listen carefully to God's Word. Now, we've been working our way through a series of lectures on the Great Commission by Dr. Michael Horton. Before we get to today's installments of those lecture lectures, just a reminder that next weekend, uh, March 10th and 11th, I'm going to be uh, teaching at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. I will be doing, giving a series of lectures, a seminar, if you would, uh, on discernment. And uh, so if you would like to attend the event, go to kongsvingerchurch.org slash events.htm. Kongsvinger is spelled K-O-N-G-S-V-I-N-G-E-R. That's with a K. So, uh, you know, for those of you in and around uh, Oslo, Minnesota, uh, you know, which is, seems to be on the um, border between 
northern Minnesota and North Dakota. Uh, I would love to see you all there if you have the ability to attend. Uh, they, I think the event itself is free. Uh, they would just request that you uh, register ahead of time so that they know that uh, you're coming. So, again, uh, that's at Kong's Vinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. Look forward to seeing any of you that are able to attend. Now, we're going to continue with our lectures uh, from Dr. Michael Horton. Uh, these are lectures number 11 and 12 in the series regarding the Great Commission. Here is lecture number 11 and Dr. Michael Horton. There we go. One of the things that is just as obvious as that was uh, is that, that every civilization lives off of a great story, a story that it tells itself. So ancient civilizations like the Babylonians had the Gilgamesh epic about how the world came into existence from primordial slime. And uh, the Romans had their myth. And what the philosophers did was simply to demythologize those schemes. In other words, deny that the story really happened, but nevertheless sort of rescue the timeless eternal principles, philosophical truths buried in those myths. And uh, every, every civilization living off of these dramatic interpretations of why we're here, who we are, who is God or the gods, what is our relationship to it, to it her, him, uh, all, of those, all of those dramas create different ways of being in the world, different ways of conceiving the importance of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life destiny, where we're going and how we live in the meantime in the light of it. And so this process of drama giving rise to doctrines, which then elicits and provokes a certain kind of doxology and shapes the way we live in the world, that's not unique to Christianity. Marxists do this. Uh, Marxists live off a myth of an eternal conflict in nature itself. There is no, there is no good creation there, uh, before a fall. It's always been fallen. It's always been red in tooth and claw. Uh, it's always been this conflict, this fight, this battle between, uh, be, between the, the working class and uh, management. And that gives rise to, there are certain doctrines that, that, then uh, stipulate how that works and buttress and defend that way of looking at the world. And Marxism also has doxology. It has praise for the proletariat. It has, it has uh, 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 its parades, you know, and its ways of inculcating that praise and, and thanksgiving and fear. There's a lot of fear in that form of worship. Um, and, of course, a way of being in the world, a, a particular discipleship. So Marxists live consistently in their behavior when they follow the principles of Marxism. Uh, capitalists uh, are behaving consistently when they follow the, the principles of capitalism. Christians are living consistently with the story that they've been told by God himself when they are living in the light of the death, resurrection, 
ascension and return of Christ. That's the great drama that yields certain doctrines provoking praise and discipleship in the world. When Christ said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, He had all of this in mind. To become a disciple of Christ is not merely to nod to the truth of the drama or to sign off on the doctrine, but it's also to praise in a way that that, that to live in that story. Not just to see it from afar, believe it from afar, but to live in that story, to actually become one of the supporting characters uh, in that story, not the pioneer, not the author and finisher, not that role that's already taken, but as part of the cast of those who are moving from this passing evil age into the kingdom of God's dear son. Now, there's also a way of talking about how we develop uh, and that can be mapped onto uh, these coordinates here. Dorothy Sayers wrote an essay in 1934, uh, The Lost Tools of Learning. And uh, it's a wonderful book. She talks about how in England, things were falling apart because uh, you you used to have grammar schools and then you had logic schools or dialectic schools, which were uh, intermediate schools. And then, uh, by late high school and early college, which was about the age uh, that our kids go to high school today, uh, you uh, focused on rhetoric. And this isn't just true about language. This, this, this was, respect, was reflected across the disciplines. So, for example, the grammar of, of painting is primary colors. The grammar of um, math would be your, your multiplication tables and so forth. And so the, the kids are a sponge at that stage. Then they reach this stage and they want to argue all the time. It's called teenager. Uh, and it's good because they're questioning. They're owning it for themselves. They're not just parroting the grammar. They're learning the logic, why they believe what they believe. And then the, at the rhetoric stage they are able to express it in their own words. They're no longer just seeing connections that others have made. They're making their own and expressing those connections, not just in language, but, as I say, in every particular field. Well, let's, look, let's, let's spend the rest of our time this morning linking these up as we're talking about the Great Commission and what it means to make disciples and be disciples because the church is not just... Uh, commissioned with going out into the world and making converts, but with making disciples. And that means what we are doing today and every Lord's Day is part of the Great Commission. We've got to stop thinking of the Great Commission as something missionaries do out on the mission field alone. It is something that happens every week in established churches around the world. It's all part of the Great Commission. Um making fine wine, learning a new sport, learning a new language. I remember when I, when I uh, first went to England and uh, some of the best friends I made there were on the uh, cricket team. And I still have no plausible explanation 
for how human beings invented that game. Uh, rugby I get, and that's fun, that's exciting. Cricket is just sort of uh, a, 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 an opportunity for a, another cucumber sandwich and a gin and tonic. I mean, seriously, it really isn't, uh, isn't easy for me to follow. Now, I'm also kind of dense, so that contributes. Anyway, what am I talking about? Uh, cricket takes time. If you want to be good at it, if you want to get good at, at a new sport, then you've got to learn it. You've got to take the time, you've got to invest the time in it. And goodness knows, we're willing to drop everything to invest a lot of time in learning how to use an iPhone. You know, I mean, good night. There's another one. Uh, wow. There's a lifetime of discipleship. Uh, and the thing is, you know, uh, unlike the scriptures, that keeps changing. So I'm going to have to keep updating my knowledge. This continuing education is part of so many aspects of our lives. It needs to be, therefore, taken seriously in, our, in, in relation to our faith. Our faith is a matter of growing in our understanding of the drama, the doctrine that arises out of it, the, the doxology that 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 uh, yields and the discipleship that follows. Otherwise, what we're going to end up with and often have in Reformed circles today is, okay, let's just look at the doctrine. And it doesn't arise out of a drama. And so no wonder, you might be interested because you're kind of an egghead, but your kids are going to be bored to death and not see any connection between the Bible and the doctrines that you're talking about. Why? Because doctrines don't fall from heaven into little uh, catalogs in the Bible. The Bible is not a catalog of timeless doctrines. In fact, there's nothing really, I've said this before, nothing really interesting in the Christian faith that is timeless. Everything that's interesting in the Apostles' Creed happened once upon a time. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There was a time when that wasn't true. Born of the Virgin Mary, time when that wasn't true. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Hadn't until he did. Not timeless truths, it's historical truths that Christianity is built on. And so what's the history? What's the, we have to, to show how the doctrine arises out of a drama. For example, we learn that God is sovereign by hearing that story again about how he trounced Pharaoh and drowned all of his armies, and, and made a mockery of all of the gods of Egypt by sending a plague calculated for each of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon. That, that does so much more than a doctrine lesson by itself. But then do the doctrine out of that because he, he teaches. Now we know that God is sovereign. Now we know what it means to say that God is Lord of all, including Pharaoh and his armies. Then certain kind of doxology comes out of that. Uh, in, again, in Reformed circles, we have some people who say, well, we'll just take the doctrine and you can have the doxology. We're gonna let, you guys are great at the praise and worship thing. We're going to just, we're, we're going to focus on the, uh, this is going to camp out here. This is, a, this is our kind of church and, that's that, that, that kind of church. We're not that kind of church. Well, we have to be that kind of church. Uh, all churches have to be grounded in the truth. 
and expressing that truth in grateful praise and thanksgiving and also lament. One of the great things about, I think, uh, about Reformed Christianity is that we're, we're actually allowed to cry a little. Um, we're a- allowed to uh, uh, not, not just have one note in our arsenal of emotions. Happy. Uh, you know, we can, we, can, we can break down. The wheels can come off in front of other Christians, and we're okay about that. That's wonderful. That's all throughout the Psalms. All throughout the Psalms. We have a piety. We have a, a, a form of doxology. We can't rip it off from people who have a different theology. A man-centered theology. Uh, or a a moralistic theology or a you know, just me-centered theology, and then take that doxology and say, but boy, they've got some great music. And we've got to have doxology that arises out of the drama that we explain by our doctrine, and then that will yield a certain kind of discipleship. Lots of people today are talking about deeds, not creed. Well, uh, everybody believes in deeds. What, what distinguishes a Christian giving a cup of cold water from a non-Christian giving a cup of cold water to someone in need? Nothing, really. Uh, except when a Christian is doing it, it's as part of the cast of the new creation. Because that person is living in the light of being in Christ. And so even the same act really is a different act because that discipleship, that act of discipleship is connected with a different way of inhabiting the world, a different way of being in the world. Now let's put some, uh, some uh, 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 fill in some of these blanks here. Drama. What then would be the grammar of the drama? It would be the names... Places and events of the Bible. Okay, so getting the grammar of the drama is names, places, and events. Uh, As Rod Rosenblatt puts it, all the birds, babies, and bees of the Bible. Uh, This this is the sort of thing that they will they will rise up and call you blessed for uh, because that stock was was put in there. And it's hard to get out once they learn it at, at, at a young age. This is hard to do when we become Christians older in life. It's like learning a new language. It, it's just a little harder for us to get this when we're older. We can, but wow, can they ever get it as sponges uh, younger. So they learn these basics. In doctrine, it's uh, Bible verses and catechism. Oh, no, we don't. We don't want to spoil their childhood, their, their uh, innate, their innate brilliance and, and, and imagination and, and uh, spontaneity by actually uh, teaching them something. Uh, no, a- actually, again, they're going to rise up and call us blessed in our old age, hopefully, more importantly, they're going to grow in their faith because 
This isn't the end. This isn't the end. This isn't all. But this is a stock of something that at least they can have the, the decency to reject later in life. Uh, forget who it was. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that today we don't even have. Uh, today I would just be happy if we had a Christianity worth rejecting. You know, <laughs> a lot of people walk out on the faith not because, not for the same reasons apostates did years ago, but simply, they just simply fade away. There, there, there was nothing there to begin with. They're like the seed planted on the rocks. This makes sure that they, they at least are given the treasures of the covenant they were promised in their baptism. And this is, again, the best time for them to learn the grammar of the faith. And then the doxology, they learn the Psalms, some of the great hymns, of the faith, uh, prayers, some of the great prayers of the church. What a wonderful thing to learn prayers of, of, uh, of the church. I mean, there, there's something about friends I have who were raised, for example, on the Book of Common Prayer. And talk about a trellis for their prayer life. And now when they pray free prayers, you know, we're just sitting around and, and they pray. There's an obvious difference between my prayers and their prayers. Um, not only do I say just a few more times than they do, uh, but they, 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 uh, uh, you know, it's, it's Christ-centered, it's God-centered, it's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. And I start right in with, uh, well, I know that I've got to do a perfunctory thank you for something, and so I do that. And then I go right into, gimme, gimme, gimme. And uh, it's just beautiful to hear people pray well. And God delights in beautiful prayers, not flowery prayers, not prayers just for rhetorical flourish, but prayers that are well said are well thought out. There is a connection there, um, the beauty of holiness. And so it's a good time for them to have those stock prayers, the, the Apostles' Creed, uh, hymns and psalms. And then discipleship, I know this is going to sound so boring. Just going to church, getting dressed, the habit of going to church regularly, uh, knowing what it is that, that keeps uh, mom and dad from going to church, that that's a, a, that's, goes deep in the grammar of kids. Um, is this really important? Is this really important? And they learn that from the family. Uh, that's the grammar. Uh, going to church, uh, uh, the kinds of friends that come into the life of the family, not even always Christians, but just friends coming in and the uh, conversations that the parents have uh, freely about the Lord, even in those contexts where their friends aren't Christians. Uh, discipleship uh, in terms of, um, of uh, uh, helping neighbors. Okay, you get the idea. So now, what would it look like if we move down the line here? Well, the logic stage, at the logic stage, you are getting the story. 
Now this can happen again at all ages. But it's easier when it happens when it's supposed to. Uh, the, the disciples, as you will recall, did not get the story. Uh, in fact, they, they got the story wrong more times than they got it right until Jesus turned them around after the resurrection. Well, we, we typically do get the story wrong, the plot of the gospel, those uh, last three years of our Lord's life, and we have to keep hearing it over and over, as we do in this church. Uh, it, you never really grow out of any of these stages. You know, we're always kind of circulating back, uh, coming back and getting more. Uh, all of this is all of all of these all of these uh, programs are open and running on the laptop. Okay, that's I I just said more than I actually understand. Uh, so, and now telling the story. Telling the story. It's wonderful to be able to... Do not feel badly if you are not, maybe a new Christian or maybe new to all of this Reformed uh, faith and practice and so forth. If all of it's new to you and you say, you know, I know, I, I think I know when someone asks me, all right, I can put things together, but I can't tell any, I can't, I can't say it yet. Sound familiar? That's fine. That's fine. It's, it, it, C.S. Lewis said, you really know something well when you can explain it to a child. And I think that's true. I think that, I, I think that you know, over time we do get to the place where we are able to express it, but that doesn't mean we don't understand it. If we can't explain it well, that doesn't mean we don't understand it. It just means that we can't put it into our own words yet. But that'll happen. And when it does, when it does, we're telling the drama. We're telling the story, not just getting it. And then when it comes to the doctrine, seeing connections is great. That's one thing. Seeing connections between David and Christ. Seeing connections between uh, creation and redemption. Seeing uh, links between the Trinity and election. Wonderful. It's very exciting, but even uh, still more exciting is being able to explain and defend the faith. Which you can only do after you see the connections yourself. Then you can put it in your own words. Then you can put it in your, in your own words. So that as Peter says, you are ready to give to everyone an answer for the hope that you have, but with all gentleness and meekness. This is, this is what we call the cage phase, no matter what age it is. This is the cage phase. You know, when you're angry Calvinists, you should be locked up for the good of common society and yourself. Uh, and only when you <laughs> are able to do what Peter says with gentleness and meekness could you be let out. Uh, on, uh, sort of on your own reconnaissance, and uh, uh, seeing so seeing connections is one thing. Being able to explain and defend them is an, is another. And we shouldn't push people too quickly from here to here, because this is a, a maturing process. And 
uh, you know, people who are, who are still angry about what their church didn't teach them uh, probably shouldn't go back to those people in that church and try to teach them. Uh, you know, it's sort of like an, uh, an ex-Mormon not being able to shut up about Joseph Smith. So, uh, you know, we need time. <laughs> we need time not only to see the connections, but also to mature with other Christians. That's why this is a team sport. Sanctification is a team sport. The contrast is between Rosetta Stone, where you teach yourself Hebrew in a week by listening to a CD, uh, versus being immersed in a culture. The church is a culture you are literally immersed or sprinkled into. Uh, it It is literally a culture. It has its own drama, its own doctrine, its own doxology, its own discipleship. Uh, it is the place where we come to be resalinated, resalted, so that we can be sent back out into the world. And so with doxology, how does it look with doxology? Um, well, you see, first of all, how the praise arises from the do- drama. Isn't it exciting? Isn't it fun when you're singing a hymn and the penny drops? And you see why the pastor picked that hymn. It fits so well with the sermon. That psalm, that, that so completely points to Christ, that, and you'd never seen that before. That's the sort of thing that, once again, it's about seeing connections. It's about being able to relate one, uh, one event, person, doctrine, one part of Scripture to another. In wonder, fear, and praise. C.S. Lewis said, boy, this is like, like, I wish I got $50 for quotes, quoting C.S. Lewis. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis again said, Emotion is never something that I have by attending to it. Emotion is always something that I have when I'm attending to something else. Isn't that a great way of putting it? It's like the hedonist paradox. If you go looking for happiness, you'll be the unhappiest person in the world. If you go looking for, for truth, goodness, and beauty, you'll have happiness in the bargain. Because... The psalmist says, my heart is stirred by a noble theme. My heart is stirred not by my energy, my pious activity, my determining to stir my heart. My heart is stirred by a doctrine, by a noble theme, by a truth. And that's what we see in Paul's epistles, where he's just talked about a great doctrine like election and justification. and says, what shall we say then in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who gave, not, didn't get, uh, who gave up his uh, son, how will he not freely with him give us everything else? For from him and to him, through him are all things. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You know, on and on and on. In doxology, he kind of gets lost in wonder and praise and awe simply by reciting the story and the great doctrine that arises out of it. That's how it's supposed to work. 
Our hearts express what we believe as, as our minds stand in awe, not comprehension. But the, the more we understand, the more incomprehensible it really is to us. How mysterious and wonderful and greater than we could possibly conceive. And then rhetorically, Paul says, Get together regularly in, in public worship for psalms. Him, make the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Isn't that great? Making the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord with all wisdom and understanding. There's a lot out there that... It, that doesn't fit that description. Um, not about the Word of Christ. More of the songs are about me. Not about the Word dwelling in me richly. So the, the texts and the music uh, are, are selected for their, their richness. And not with all wisdom and understanding as much as a, a, a direct shot like candy to the stomach, uh, a direct shot of emotion to the heart, without the noble theme. But our doxology, our praise, will be so much richer when we actually have something to praise God for. We know why we're worshiping, why we're giving thanks, why we're lamenting and crying out. And then discipleship. Uh, what does it look like with uh, discipleship there? Well, um, they begin to understand what it means to be baptized. See, we don't believe that people are that, that our children are pagans and then hopefully one day they will become Christians. We believe that they're Christians. God has claimed them now so that they will repent and believe, and they may not even remember uh, when that happened but they're going to recall God's faithfulness uh, uh, over their lifetime as that conversion has been ongoing in their lives and the lives of their parents. So They're beginning to learn the meaning of their baptism, seeing the connections between faith and life. See, this is exactly what's falling apart. Jake Reshamation said, in the 1920s, we be, we're beginning to have so much applied Christianity, we have no Christianity to apply. You know, practical Christianity. Oh, we need practical Christianity. Well, it's practically Christianity. There's very little Christianity in the practical Christianity business. Uh, you have to have Christianity to apply. And so, with all of this going on, you have that. You, you're beginning to see the connections between faith and life. A lot of young people today, according to the studies, a lot of young people today don't know how to apply their faith to their life because they don't have any faith to apply. They don't understand what they believe and why they believe it. And so they struggle because they're constantly being told to put their faith into practice, but they don't know what to put into practice except law. 
That's what, that's what we're learning from a lot of the studies uh, being conducted these days. They're learning wisdom. They're learning that even where God has not spoken, you don't make a rule or break a rule, you exercise wisdom and discretion. They're living out their, their discipleship. They're living out their baptism. And then they make public profession and receive their first communion. Their first communion. What a wonderful day that is. What is that? Well, that, that is when you understand the connections. When your discipleship is not just a matter of routines. It's okay to have routines. It's okay just to know the names, places, and events, the Bible verses, the catechism. Just know the psalms, the hymns, and the prayers and go to church and help your neighbor. It's okay. There's a time for that. As the Holy Spirit digs trenches in our lives, we're shaped by practices, not just doctrine. That's, that's good. That's fine. But at some point, we need, to, we need to ask, is this really, do I own this for myself? Or am I just parroting what I've been told? And that's why it's great in teen years not to have a catechist who treats you like you're this, but one who, who, who really pushes you and says, well, why do you believe this? Well, I don't know. The church teaches it. Oh, are you a Roman Catholic? Right. Um, and then finally, uh, looking up in faith and looking out in love. All good gifts come down from God. Works do not go up. Works come down. God's works come down. Our works don't go up. Who has ever given Him anything, Paul says, that He could pay us back? For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. Well, then where do our good works go? Our good works go out to our neighbors. I have repeated this before. I'll repeat it again because I just love it so much. Luther's great line, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. God's okay. He doesn't need a car. He doesn't need a house. Uh, he, he's, he's all right. He'll take care of himself. In fact, he'll take care of us. He'll take care of the atheist who's yelling profanities at him. He'll, he'll, he, he's a, take, he's, he's a, a very, very capable Creator, preserver, redeemer, sovereign. But our neighbor needs a new car. <laughs> our neighbor's roof is leaking. Our neighbor doesn't have food on the table. Or our neighbor is lonely. And it's very easy, you know, to pick internet neighbors to help and not really see who our nearest neighbors are who need us. And this is when it really begins to take off. This is when it really gets fun and tough and choices have to be made and priorities, reprioritizing our life. Uh, and we, we start living together as a community. Not just a community of students in a classroom, but a community uh, like a family, an actual family. And uh, what I find so encouraging is I, I think that we're, I think that we're in this quadrant as a church. You know, I think that a lot of us come from places where we needed a lot of this. We we came from places where we didn't get 
a lot of this. And we were even kind of frustrated about all of that. And now we're just glad we're soaking in the salt solution so that we can go out into the world and be salt and light to our neighbors, looking up in faith toward God and out to our uh, neighbors in love. That's where, our, that's where our good works go. But for this to happen, we need discipline. And everybody's talking about the spiritual disciplines today. The spiritual disciplines. We're going to get rid of all of this for the five things that we're told in the latest spiritual disciplines manual to follow which is all private. It's almost all private. The Rosetta Stone approach to language. It's all private. Just put this CD in or just follow uh, this devotional guide or just pray this prayer. We're not against private devotions. It's just that private piety flows out of the family and the church. And the church, by the way, is never going to be able to, rate, to, to disciple us or our kids if the family isn't into it. Um, you know, this is—it's not the church's primary response. Uh, uh, the church is not the primary uh, uh, officer with the responsibility. It's really uh, the head of the household has the primary responsibility for raising kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Church can only do so much, but we have our own little parishes, our own little churches at home, and we're, we're going to fail. And part of this, by the way, part of this is our kids seeing us fail and confess our sins to each other and the Lord. Part of living out our faith, showing that it's relevant and it really does mean something to us before our, our, our other family members involves sinning properly. You know, not just obeying properly, but sinning properly. What do what do the people closest to me from whom I take my cues, what do they do when they really blow it? To whom do they go? Do they hide it? Do they deflect it to someone else? Do they blame someone else? They they take it seriously and then confess it to death. Just take it to the Lord, lay it at His feet, and receive forgiveness. And now I've actually seen what it looks like to own your sin and to let go of it in forgiveness because it was a horrible thing and I saw what happened. And then I I saw my mom or dad or brother or sister go out and, and talk to the person they offended and uh, they came back and told us the story. Powerful. Powerful. And it's stuff like that that you can't get out of a book. You can't get out of a, a tape uh, or CD. or You can't go, go get from a conference. It just It's like learning to ride a bike. You can't get that out off of a CD. You can't, you know, what, put, a, put a CD in and DVD. Uh, how to ride a bike in two hours. You've got to ride a bike and fall off and get back on and so forth. The Christian faith is exactly like learning to ride a bike. And before long, we're not looking at the pedals or the handles. <laughs> we're just riding. Still falling off, getting back on, but riding, and that's when it gets really fun.
All right, any questions? Comments, accusations, personal attacks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, Angela's point is uh, it's like being seven all over again because we were taught all kinds of verses. Uh, we're learning new verses that we weren't taught and we couldn't put things together. That's true, but also let's be grateful for what was put into us, what we did learn. Because a lot of those verses are important, at least if, if the, you know, the ones I learned. I am grateful to my Arminian Baptist uh, uh, pastors and, and Sunday school teachers and so forth, because in those days, they used to actually do a lot of Bible memorization. I think, it, it, I think it's a lot of it, from what I hear, is pizza now. But in those days, they, you know, uh, you know almost like... Uh, uh, Torture techniques and whatever they needed to do to get her done, uh, going to get those Bible verses in your head. I am forever grateful for that. And a lot of them were great verses. In a lot of cases, it was the first half of the verse, but then when it got Calvinistic, they cut that half off. But still, Bible is Bible is Bible is Bible, and I think that they did give me kind of a a uh, uh, spine that I could hang things on later. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and so that grammar, that's how important the grammar is. Even in situations where they didn't teach you all of the, all of the verses that you would want your kids to learn now. Even when the grammar stage isn't done all that well, it's a lot better than not having it. And, uh, it, yeah, so important for us to, we are, we, we're all kind of like seven-year-olds again. I mean, we're all coming back to, I'm amazed at how, how uh, I'll hear something, hear an exposition of a passage, or uh, even hear reference to a verse that I have never heard before, or I've never thought about before. And, or I've heard it a thousand times, and it never really hit me that it has any connection to what he was saying it had a connection to, and uh, the penny drops. And I'm hearing this from a, a, a person who's been a Christian for three years, and wow! I, so we're all. None of us is, you know, at uh, you know double black diamond. <laughs> okay, let's yes. Yes, thank you, thank you for. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have. <laughs> uh, yes, the uh, my new systematic theology. In my new systematic theology, I I start out in, in the introduction explaining why I think this is how it works, and sort of do this. 
Not with the chart. The chart I've kind of thought about more recently. Um, would like to, to use that. And then also the book on the Great Commission uh, that uh, Lord willing uh, will be coming out in uh, late February, early March. We'll, ha- we'll have, again, not that chart itself, but the arguments that I'm trying to make here. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I, I just didn't think of it until uh, a couple months. Okay, I'll do that. Thank you. Thank you. It does help. It does help, I think, to make the point. Okay, let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you care for us. You are, uh, uh, we are not self-feeders. We're not left as orphans to fend for ourselves redeemed by the Good Shepherd only to be uh, scattered uh, and left to wolves, but that you have uh, cared for us through under-shepherds, that you have given us uh, wise um, shepherds. In in, in many cases, you've given us Christian parents. In some cases, you haven't. Uh, In in other cases, just one Christian parent. But uh, you have been so faithful to us in so many ways. And uh, now, Father, you are—you uh, have us connected to a church where there are uh, faithful ministers, elders, deacons who are looking after our spiritual and physical welfare. Help us to pray for them. Help us to uh, come alongside them and uh, uh, assist them in their, their work. Uh, may it be, as you uh, tell us through uh, the writer to the Hebrews, a pleasure for them to do this service for us uh, and uh, not a difficulty. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. When we come back, we'll be listening to lecture number 12. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if, well, your pastor's not preaching the gospel and rightly handling God's word. Yeah, I'm just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, here is lecture number 12 in the Great Commission series uh, being uh, presented here at uh, PCR uh, by Dr. Michael Horton. Here we go. All right, let's open in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with Christ through word and sacrament this morning. We're so clearly reminding us again of the important distinction between your law and your gospel. And help us, Father, to uh, relate that even this morning to the Christian life and what it means to be a disciple, to learn your gospel and to live in the light of that gospel by following your commands. Uh, help us, Father, to uh, avoid mission creep in our own hearts, our own lives, as well as our church. Help us to remain focused on the message and the methods that your Son delivered to us in his great commission. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're all under church discipline. So am I. We're all under church discipline. The whole idea of church discipline as, as uh, only something that people are under when they're in trouble is, 
not a very good view of what church discipline is. Uh, I think one of the things that surprises people a lot of times when, uh, at least I hear this, when uh, uh, people who have come from other backgrounds, uh, not so much Roman Catholic because the priest comes over and, and uh, you know, you know your priest, but especially in, in evangelical churches, larger evangelical churches particularly, uh, people, when they first come to a Reformed church, express uh, alarm when they get a phone call saying the elder wants to come over for a visit. Tim Riddlebarger tells the story of when he, uh, he would go in and, and you know, uh, it, it would always help when going on hospital visits to wear his collar. So he would wear his collar in to uh, go make house or uh, hospital visits. And uh, he remembers the first guy who had never, this was like his third, he'd been at Christ Reformed for about three weeks. And had been raised in a, in a large uh, church where he didn't know the pastor, didn't even know who the elders were, uh, not sure they had elders. And uh, Kim walked in and he said, Oh my goodness. <laughs> Is it that bad? Is it worse than I thought that it was? He thought he was dying. He thought he had probably hours to live because the, you know, the priest is here to, uh, for last rites or something. It shocks people these days when pastors and elders actually get involved in the lives of the people under their charge. And yet you look at, for instance, what the reformers, as busy as they were, Luther and Calvin spent hours during the week catechizing the young people. That was part of their job. And in our church order, it says that, that uh, although they can be assisted by others in the church, the main uh, uh, responsibility for catechesis of the young uh, in the church, of course in the home of the parents, but in the, in the church, uh, are the pastors. And you think, wow, they're really busy. But yeah, the, the, the uh, Luther, Calvin... Bootser, the others, they were, yeah, they were very busy, but they thought that was an essential part of their work. They also thought it was important with the elders to go visiting house to house. And we heard that announcement this morning about uh, getting on the rotation to have house uh, uh, <laughs> home visitation, which is a very important part of our reform. So don't be worried when the elders want to come over they're not, it's not because they've heard through the grapevine uh, something about you that should worry you. Uh, they want to come and be a blessing to you. They want to, they want to uh, uh, encourage you. They want to uh, ask how things are going. And I, it, it can be a kind of disorienting thing at first uh, because it's too close. You know, we, we're Americans. We like a little bit of distance. This is, religion's a very private affair. No, it's not a private affair. It's a team sport. It's a family business. Uh, you know, <laughs> Jesus is our elder brother. God is our father. You know, this is a family. And we get together for family reunions on, on the Lord's Day. And also, as we read in the book of Acts, from house to house. As Paul told the Ephesian elders, remember how I preached publicly and also from house to house. And so that is 
an essential part of the discipline that we all need. We live in a time when there's a lot of talk about spiritual disciplines, which means that there are resources for private individuals to continue their exclusively private piety and have no accountability to anyone but themselves about how well they're doing at it. You know, uh, that is typically America. That's why you can walk into any Christian bookstore and see rafts and rafts and rafts of books on how to uh, have... Uh, you know, better spiritual disciplines. There's nothing wrong with having private disciplines. But the private disciplines need to be uh, discussed within the broader framework of church discipline. That's where there's a lot, there are a lot of passages. There are no passages about how long your quiet time should be. There are no passages about what you should do in your private devotions. There are no passages on whether you should fast or not fast, or whether you should uh, uh, incorporate a labyrinth in your backyard or not. There are no passages at all on those things, but there are scores of passages on qualifications for ministers, elders, and deacons, and for the responsibility of the people to submit themselves to the elders so that their work will not be laborious, will not be difficult, and so that it will be good for uh, the church and for the, the, uh, the sheep as well as the shepherd. And so when we talk about uh, disciplines, this is where we as churches of the Reformation go first, to church discipline and the fact that we're all under it. We are all... Under the yoke of Christ, Christ said, don't go to the Pharisees. They tie down burdens that neither they uh, uh, nor our fathers could bear, and they don't even lift a finger to help you. We all know that. Uh, But Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened under, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so the place where he does this, the place where Christ disciples us, besides the home, which is very important for making disciples, is the church. And uh, that's what I want to talk about uh, here for a few minutes, disciples and discipline. The, The Great Commission, remember, is go into all the world and make disciples by preaching the gospel, baptizing, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Church discipline covers really all of that in one sense because it's the elder's responsibility to make sure that the word is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. It's the minister's responsibility to do it, but it's the elder's responsibility to make sure it's done, which is why in Reformed churches, uh, uh, the elders come out uh, and deacons, uh, but uh, uh, the elders come out w- with the ministers and uh, in, in many Reformed churches shake their hand. The president of consistory, the president of the elders, shakes the hand of the minister, allowing him into the pulpit. It's a symbolic act to say, this is not Michael Brown's church. When you see the elders come out, it's saying this, this is, isn't 
Michael Brown's church. This is Christ's church. And pastors come and go. But Christ is alive forevermore. And Christ is going to take care of His church. He's always going to have someone setting the table. We don't become attached to people. We become attached to Christ. And it's the shepherd's job to do that. It's the shepherd's job to attach us not to himself, but to Christ, the living head of the church. Christ is the only head of the church. And so that's what Christ is doing between the times. Making sure that the word is preached, not only so that uh, the sheep will be fed, but also so that goats will become sheep. <laughs> you know, that, that uh, people outside of the covenant community, those under the curse, uh, as we were, uh, will have that curse lifted through faith in Christ. They will be robed in his righteousness and be able to withstand uh, that uh, uh, day of judgment. And that their hearts will be renewed through the preaching of the gospel and through uh, confirmed in that faith through uh, the administration of the sacraments. But discipline especially falls on that third clause. Go to all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Not, well, you know, in all things, uh, 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 in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, in all things, uh, or in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. No, Jesus says, I, I, I just, I, 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 wrote, I wrote it down. All the things that I think are essential. <laughs> it's in a book. Uh, and it's all essential. Well, I can't possibly get that under my belt uh, uh, anytime soon. No, of course, you're, you're going to die unfinished with this. But, but I'm going to teach you, Christ says, everything. Everything that is necessary for life and godliness. And that's why Paul could tell the Ephesian elders, while I, w I have a clean conscience, while I was with you, I didn't leave anything out. I preached to you the whole counsel of God. I left out nothing that was profitable for you. Ambassadors do not create policy. Ambassadors relate policy. Ambassadors speak for the king. Ambassadors are not the king. And that's a, a very important distinction that we find in the New Testament when the apostles call themselves, even the apostles call themselves ambassadors. In contrast with many of the assumptions that we have in our do-it-yourself discipleship world, uh, Christ has established offices in the church. There is this church discipline, this teaching them er to obey everything that I have commanded you, uh, is an essential part of the Great Commission. And it's not just something that you do out of a kit on the mission field, and then you set up that church and you make sure that you know, you've done everything that he told you to do, and then you, you move. The Great Commission is as much a mandate for the church here in Santee as it is for the church in Nairobi or the church in Singapore. It's, it is the mandate for all churches. It is the regular function of the church, not a special, extraordinary function of the church. The Great Commission speaks first of the ministry 
of the word in sacrament because the church is created by that ministry. The, the church is not created by the diaconal ministry. The diaconal ministry was instituted so that the apostles could give themselves entirely to the ministry of the word and prayer. The, 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 the church isn't dependent for its existence on ministries of mercy or on ministries of hospitality or on ministries of compassion or on ministries of giving. But the church is completely dependent for every second of its breath on the oxygen that is created by the hearing of the Word. It is the hearing of the Gospel in particular that creates faith and sustains faith and creates the fruit of faith, which is good works, which is why you need a diaconate. Which is why you need elders then to supervise the growth and discipleship, the fruit, the results of that ministry of the Word. And so... The ministry of word and sacrament is the source of all of our blessings, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, when Christ ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to people on earth. And he gave prophets and apostles, and he gave pastors, teachers, and evangelists, so that the whole body would be built up into its head, Jesus Christ. And so the gifts that he gave, Paul says, uh, are not just like the spiritual gifts, the list of spiritual gifts we find in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Uh, They are people. He gave pastors and teachers as a gift, as part of that that, uh, 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 bursting of the pinata, In his ascension, when he ascended, he took a whack at the pinata and the candy went everywhere. And those little pieces of candy are are pastors and missionaries and evangelists going spreading the word week in, week out around the world. That's how Paul pictures the ministry of, of word and sacrament. And so Christ is our shepherd king. Officers in the church don't replace Christ. Rather, officers in the church are under shepherds who lead the flock to Christ, who is the good shepherd. The New Testament not only gives us the message, the mission, and the methods of the Great Commission, but it even gives us instruction on the government of the church. I find this remarkable because, I won't mention names, but one leading advocate of the spiritual disciplines uh, movement today says, the Great Commission never called anyone to plant churches. Wow, it kind of looks like it, it's a command to plant churches, to go into all the world preach the, preaching the gospel, baptizing, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. sounds pretty much like what you do at, at church. He says, no, it, it really was a call to, to uh, personal commitment and development through a spiritual director, find a good spiritual director and good spiritual resources and follow those resources so that you can, you can develop a close, intimate, personal walk with Jesus. I think the apostles would have said, huh? It's not, 
really what I what we're talking about there. Uh, you'll have a personal close walk with the Lord Jesus Christ together with His body through the ministry of word and sacrament and through the discipline of the church. That godly counsel and discipline that happens in a normal way, not just when we're acting up, but when when we're doing relatively well and and we need encouragement or we need direction or it's a great opportunity for us to ask questions or uh, for us maybe to have a reality check on you know a few things kick in the pants it's uh, you know always nice to to have someone outside of our own family environment uh, giving us encouragement and exhortation what is the purpose of these gifts in in many of our modern translations the next verses read in Ephesians 4 he gave these pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And if you have an ESV or an NIV translation, that's what you, that's what you uh, will get. But the, It's a little tricky here. I won't go into lots of detail, just enough to make a point. The verb here is all important, katartismon. He gave these gifts to, in the NIV or ESV, equip. Uh, however, in many, many instances, most instances, in which catartismon appears, it is to complete or perfect. In the context of completing something or perfecting something, which makes more sense in the light of the fact that Paul is using a building metaphor. You don't equip the building you complete a building. You're building this project. It's built on the foundation of Christ, and now we're in the building phase as the building is erected, and this ministry is given for the completion of the building. And then furthermore, the question is raised whether he's talking about being equipped for the work of the ministry, or completed by the work of the ministry. Because ace, the preposition ace, could be interpreted either as with, either with or by, or as for. And so when people translate this as uh, he gave pastors and teachers to equip people, the the the, the uh, people for the for the work of the ministry, uh, it's not like they don't have any lexical ground to stand on, any grammatical ground to stand on, uh, but it is definitely an interpretation, not just strictly translation uh, uh, issues that are involved there. It's not for nothing that the older translations, like the King James version, the Authorized version, says that he gave pastors and teachers for completing the saints by their work of ministry. And Andrew Lincoln, for example, a commentator on Ephesians, says uh, he cannot get beyond the suspicion that uh, uh, American democratic egalitarianism is playing some role in the way things are being translated here. Now, there are many passages that talk about the spiritual gifts that all of the people have. It's not just that pastors, elders, and deacons have spiritual gifts. But it is to say there are offices in the church that are distinct 
everyone in the church, officer, non-officer, is equal before God. In Christ there is no, no Jew, no Gentile, no uh, uh, minister uh, uh, or, say, officer and non-officer, uh, male or female, for all are one in Christ. Before Christ we are all equally guilty and equally justified. However, in the church there are different roles. And officers are given a role with certain qualifications, are given a role uh, that is essential for building up the body of Christ in something particular, Paul says. Building up the body in each part into Christ who is the head of overall. And that's the building program, that's the, that's the phase that we're in right now as a church. And we'll be in that phase until Jesus returns. The long building program. That's the real building program. Whatever other building programs we have here at Santee, that is, that's the main building program. Uh, very different from the idea of crusade evangelism, where you have people come forward and then uh, do-it-yourself discipleship, where you get a book or you, get a, uh, you know, go to a conference, get a CD, and it's sort of like uh, learning Arabic in three weeks. Uh, I'm going to, you know, sort of like Rosetta Stone approach to discipleship. Uh, Through these five principles, I'm going to quickly learn the tools and the techniques and the keys to spiritual growth, and it's going to happen like that. But it doesn't happen like that. You get burned out, you get frustrated, and you wonder why things are falling apart. And that's because we're not self-feeders. We're sheep. And we need to be pastured and cared for for our whole lives, even to the day we we die. And it is not uh, something that never touches earth. The church, of course, can't be reduced to a historical institution, which is the tendency of uh, the Roman Catholic approach to things. The church as an institution is the guarantor of Christ's presence among us. At the same time, Christ works through a visible institutional organization. He works through the ministry of of sinners. He works through creaturely means. And so he gave these gifts to the church. He gave elders not to represent the people, but to represent Christ on behalf of the people. It's a very important thing to think whenever we're thinking about... uh, electing elders. We don't elect elders because they represent our niche in the church. Well, you know, it's about time we had somebody who would represent our concerns and our interests uh, among the elders. No, we pick elders who we believe will represent Christ's interests even if we don't like them. You know, we're looking for, for discerning godly men in that office. In a lot of cases, and I see it in Reformed and Presbyterian churches, uh, elders are, are often selected because they have business acumen. They are successful in leadership and, and so forth. And uh, all things being equal, it would be wonderful to have people with that kind of experience, but I'll take 
uh, uh, someone any day who's had no uh, success in the business world, who doesn't know how to run a company, uh, who is a janitor, for example, who has great knowledge of the Scriptures and the Word of God and discernment and wisdom and counsel, any day of the week, uh, that, is, that is what uh, qualifies uh, a man for eldership. He can lead and guide and counsel uh, the church in its spiritual concerns. And then the deacons can take care of the, the bodily welfare, the physical concerns of, of the church, both the place and the people. Uh, it's wonderful when, the, when the, the ministers and the elders not only don't have the responsibility for the administration and financial welfare of the church, but when, uh, uh, I always think it's a good idea when preachers don't get to touch the money, even avoiding the appearance of evil. Uh, and uh, not a few people in our pasts, some of us, uh, have, have really brought great reproach because they were allowed to determine the financial and business affairs of the church rather than devoting themselves entirely to the ministry of the Word and prayer. And so discipleship, the making of discipleships, requires church discipline uh, because Christ called His apostles not just to make converts, but to make disciples. And discipleship is, is, is over our whole lives. I used the analogy a couple of weeks ago of playing the piano. Um, or uh, learning a new language, or riding a, learning to ride a bike. You know, at first, you're watching the pedals when you're learning to ride a bike, and you're focusing on the handlebars, and you're, you're, you're uh, likely to fall off because you're focusing on the handlebars and not on what's in front of you. But eventually, you get really good at it, uh, and you're not even thinking about the pedals or the handlebars, you're just riding playing the piano. You're thinking about the notes. You are, you're hunting and pecking and you're looking closely at every note. You're not thinking about the music. You're thinking about your fingers and the notes on the page. Then eventually you become proficient and you're, you're playing the music. You're living in the music. You're not focusing on the notes. You are tacitly aware of them, but you're focusing on the music. Uh, same with learning a language. You know, you're, you're focusing on the grammar and then one day you start speaking the language and then you just start babbling uh, until people tell you to, to shut up. Uh, 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 talking about my own experience here. Um, uh, projecting, again, Mike is projecting. The, the, uh, but that's, that's, why we need, uh, that's why we need church discipline because uh, we never grow out of this phase of needing to learn how to run the, ride the bike. We never grow out of the phase of needing to develop, to grow more in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, private disciplines are important, but church discipline is, is the main context that we find, at least in the New Testament, for the growth of disciples, the making of disciples and the sustenance of disciples. And of course, if, if things are going well in the church, then that needs to be supplemented by the home. But uh, it is, it is uh, once again, the uh, 
the, the ministry of the church to make sure that it is happening at home. And so it is for, it is for our good when the elders and ministers comes in, uh, uh, when they come into our home and ask us how catechesis is going. Uh, how, you know, how are, how are our family prayers going? Uh, how consistently are we living? Uh, what, what, is it the case that what we tell our kids is true? Is 180 degrees different from what we actually believe? Uh, when we sin, are we confessing you know, our sins and acknowledging them before the Lord and receiving his forgiveness? Uh, not, only, not only in our walking in obedience, but in our, in our failures, are we mirroring the, 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 uh, the walk that uh, our Lord prescribes? And so, if you want to, if you if you have a problem with with church discipline, and America just does not like discipline in any form, you know, it's, oh, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it myself. No, that's you know, honey, don't look at me with those piercing eyes. Um, <laughs> got it all under control. I can do it. No, I can do it. I can do it myself. That's our character. You know, I get it. I can do it myself. We don't like people coming in and, uh, you know, we're guys. We don't ask directions. Okay, I'm a, I guess I'm alone on that one. But uh, um, this is something you can't do yourself because you have to have someone outside of you preaching the word, both the law and the gospel. You have to have even a, even a stranger, someone you wouldn't hang out with, uh, uh, coming up to you over coffee. And encouraging you uh, in the gospel. Uh, people we may not have chosen for ourselves, but God chose them for us before the foundation of the world as our brothers and sisters. And that's what happens. We grow more and more into the body of Christ. As we grow more and more into Him who is our head, we grow more and more horizontally into a fellowship, a communion of saints with each other. Church discipline has never been intended to drive people away. Uh, even in the very last, if you are familiar with our form, even uh, for excommunication, which is terrified ever to read. Even there, the last word is the door is still open for every prodigal son or daughter. The door is always open. And this is an emphasis really in Reformed churches. Yes, there is church discipline, but you never cut someone off entirely. Even the excommunicated, you continue to pray for. You continue to, to talk to them. You continue to, to encourage them to come back. You always leave that door open uh, for any uh, pro- prodigal son or daughter. But it's essential because we are sheep prone to wander, pro- prone to leave the one we love. And it's also important because it is the commandment of our Savior and it is the commandment of uh, his representatives. The writer to the Hebrews says, remember to submit to your elders and those who rule over you because they are doing this for your good and don't make this a burden. that's something for us to remember here. It's always for our blessing. It's always for our good. It is not because we want a, or the Lord wants a pure church that has no uh, uh, sin 
ongoing sin in it or ongoing uh, uh, theological error or, or so forth. It's not because he wants to... It's more important to drive people out who are going to corrupt the church than it is uh, to uh, let people go. No, he wants to keep everybody in. He wants to, he wants to, to uh, save and nurture his sheep, even the sheep who are straying. It is for our good that he is doing this. The Savior, the good shepherd who has given his life for his sheep, now has the right to rule his sheep. And the good news is that the one who rules us, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who rules us, is the same one who gave his life to save us. It is that ruler, that king, that Lord, who is also our Savior and Redeemer, who cares too much for us just to justify us. He's not content until he sanctifies us and saves us from all of his enemies and ours and glorifies us on the last day. Any quick questions or comments? Next time we'll talk about connectional government. Is, is, is connectional government, okay, call, go ahead and call it Presbyterian, polity, church government, is it actually biblical? Uh, church discipline not only in the local body, but in the wider, uh, uh, ever-extending um, relations between churches. That's what we'll talk about next time. Anything on this one? Before we break off, Angela? Uh, structure or caring for each other's temporal needs? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it. Yeah, I. I think that. 
it's the question is whether we lost uh, some structure out of reaction to Rome or also uh, in comparison with, with evangelicals who have some structure for things like accountability groups and so forth. I think it, it's not a question of structure. Everybody has structure. The question is, what are they structured around and what do they think the Bible requires us to do? In Reformed churches, we might get it wrong, might misinterpret things, but at least the conviction is we can't do anything in the church that the Bible doesn't command. Not just that we can't violate anything that the Bible commands, but that we can't even do anything that the Bible doesn't command as necessary. And that's a pretty... <laughs> that trims a lot of fat. Uh, that means that the church can only preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, take care of the sick and, and uh, orphans and widows uh, and poor in its midst, that only... The church can only do these things. It can't do these other things. And so we, we look at it and kind of scratch our head and say, it's kind of odd that the elders are coming over for a visit. Well, that's part of our structure, but that's actually commanded in Scripture. But we don't have accountability groups or, or you know, a, a, a group for this, that, or the other thing. And that sometimes does feel a little awkward, but are those groups, you know, we can't tell you to join a small group if the scriptures don't require you to. We don't have authority to do that as ministers or elders. We only have authority to say, uh, come, come to church on the Lord's Day, uh, spend the whole Lord's Day in in. Uh, uh, meditation on his word and communion of saints in works of mercy and works of charity. Uh, but uh, that's, that's where it, it, it's kind of ironic. You don't have any rules governing the Lord's Day and the responsibilities for going to shut-ins and, and uh, uh, that sort of thing, which is traditional in Reformed churches on the Lord's Day works of mercy, um, no expectation of regular family worship necessarily, but lots of programs that you're expected to be a part of. You know, what is your ministry in the church? Find a ministry. When the ministry is the ministry of word and sacrament and you're to use your gifts for the body, not only on the Lord's Day, but in the week through your callings out in the world. And that's something that ministers can't do because ministers are devoting their energies to the next <laughs> uh, uh, obligations of, of making believers salt and light. I mean, that's, that's the job of, of ministers not to be salt, well, it's also to be salt, but, but mainly to resalinate, resalt us every week and then we get shaken out of the salt shaker into the world. And that's where our good works go. So our ministers serve us on the Lord's Day. We serve our neighbors Monday through Saturday.
Yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's great. I mean, that's a great... Uh, uh, God has just served you, and now you're going out to serve the world. And that is a great way to look at it. Absolutely. Okay, we'll... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's especially hard in, in a, a church where a lot a lot of us commute distances. And what do you do? This isn't like you know walking down the uh, pathway from, you know, we're, we all live within three blocks of each other and we walk to the church and then we can just hang out in each other's homes. That is the way it was for centuries and now we live very different lives uh, largely because of the automobile and the life that the automobile makes possible. But uh, then we have to really work harder at it. Yeah. We'll talk more about that uh, in, a, in a few weeks. But um, the, the importance of... Especially hospitality as one of one of the uh, one of the uh, gifts in the body of Christ. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have provided so richly for our pilgrimage uh, that you have seen not only to our uh, salvation from your wrath, but also to our salvation from the ravaging uh, forces of sin, Satan death and hell, that still wrestle uh, for our souls and bodies. We pray that you would continue, Father, to, uh, by your uh, word and spirit and by the under-shepherds you have provided, pastors, elders, and deacons, continue to guide us uh, to that uh, celestial city, to that city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. We pray this all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Great stuff. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>